This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Tonight, all of us here at Politics and Prose are very thrilled to host Otessa Moshfeg for her fourth book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. It comes closely on the heels of her past three titles, uh, 2014's novella of a drunken sailor called Maglu, uh, which uh, is soon to be re-released by Penguin early next year. 2015's noir-tinged Man Booker Prize shortlisted Eileen, and 2016's collection Homesick for Another World, which collected stories originally published through outlets like the Paris Review, the New Yorker, the Baffler, and more. Um, I'm very happy to see how this new novel has been blowing up. It feels like something that my fellow booksellers um, have, who have loved her work from the beginning uh, knew was about to happen for this one because I, I know we've all been waiting eagerly to tell everyone for months in advance of its release about what this book is. Um, so among the countless things I have to say about it, it's the perfect water cooler book. Um, there are many reasons for that. There are the risks that she takes in the writing, uh, the confidence to frame the novel around a decidedly sedentary character who barely leaves her apartment, um, the really full throttle uh, sensation and induced lack of sensation uh, in the book, the gall to set the novel at perhaps the most eerily pregnant moment in New York City history, um, and at the same time, I could praise her for an unbelievable sense of humor, which is carried over and amplified from her previous books. Um, I really think she should receive some kind of medal for creating Dr. Tuttle, who's <laughs> in the book the only psychiatrist to answer the phone at 11 at night on a Tuesday, and every sentence of hers is, is a very bizarre punchline. Uh, but more than any of that, I really would like to praise her for deploying those tools in a very caustic manner for a really unique, hard-won sense of, of real soul. Uh, she's unparalleled at creating characters that are simultaneously at their most damaged and at uh, their most capable of experiencing real transcendence. Um, I was not prepared for how emotionally overwhelming this book becomes, and I was left at the end even more amazed than before by how quickly she's amassing a, a real collection of masterworks. So it's immensely gratifying to see all of you here to watch uh, uh, unfold this widespread love for this novel. So if you haven't already, buy a copy for yourself, a copy for your friends, your partial friends, your friends who are secretly your enemies, and everybody, because you'll have a lot to talk about and go through together with this book. So without further ado, here's Otessa Moshveg. Hi. Hi. Hello, hi, hi. Thanks, Jonathan. That was a really flattering introduction. Um, okay, I can't believe how many people are here. I almost didn't come because of the rain. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I wanted to do, so before I start, I, wanted, I took a nap today for the first time since I was like seven years old. And <laughs> I wanted to, I think it was because of the weather. And I just wanted to start by reading a description of a fictional nap from my book. <clears throat> Actually, it's just about naps in general. Okay, at work, so this woman, I'm gonna tell you more later, but this woman, also, they're, this being videotaped, so I have to be careful. You're, you're getting the clean version of me tonight. Okay, so this woman has been working in a art gallery in Chelsea, and she's, she's really into sleeping. Um, I guess that's all you need to know for this little excerpt. And this comes like early on in the book. <clears throat> At work, I took hour-long naps in the supply closet under the stairs during my lunch breaks. Napping is such a childish word, but that was what I was doing. 
The tonality of my night sleep was more variable, generally unpredictable, but every time I lay down in that supply closet, I went straight into black emptiness, an infinite space of nothingness. I was neither scared nor elated in that space. I had no visions. I had no ideas. If I had a distinct thought, I would hear it, and the sound of it would echo and echo until it got absorbed by the darkness and disappeared. There was no response necessary, no inane conversation with myself. It was peaceful. A vent in the closet released a steady flow of fresh air that picked up the scent of laundry from the hotel next door. There was no work to do, nothing I had to counteract or compensate for because there was nothing at all, period. And yet I was aware of the nothingness. I was awake in the sleep somehow. I felt good, almost happy. But coming out of that sleep was excruciating. My entire la life flashed before my eyes in the worst way possible, my mind refilling itself with all my lame memories, every little thing that had brought me to where I was. I'd try to remember something else, a better version, a happy story maybe, or just an equally lame but different life that would at least be refreshing in its digressions. But it never worked. I was always still me. Sometimes I woke up with my face wet with tears. The only times I cried, in fact, were when I was pulled out of that nothingness, when the alarm on my cell phone went off. Then I had to trudge up the stairs, get coffee from the little kitchen, and rub the boogers out of my eyes. It always took me a while to readjust to the harsh fluorescent lighting. Okay, so that's how she sleeps at work. I just wanted to read that because I, I woke up from this nap and I couldn't believe it had happened. <clears throat> and I was like, wait, I wrote that. <laughs> so, um, so, okay, so you've heard a little bit from our narrator and her thoughtfulness about sleep. And um, I'm gonna read from the first chapter of the book um, to introduce you a little bit to her and her project and then a couple of the other characters. Um, but before I do that, I, I'm, I want to say something because I gave a reading in Berkeley. I read for like 20 or 25 minutes, and the first question in the Q&A was, so what is your book about? <laughs> so I, I, felt, I feel like it might be useful, and it only takes a minute to tell you that um, <laughs> my book is about a woman in her mid-20s living in Manhattan, and it's the year 2000, and the book moves into 2001. Um, she for various reasons, decides to take on a project, which is to sleep as much as humanly or inhumanly possible for an entire year. And she does this because she convinces herself that if she can only sleep long enough, her cells will have regenerated the number of times it would take for them to have forgotten um, whatever trauma or memory or past had been lodged in her body or mind. So she believes that sleep is going to cleanse her of her self, which she is not too happy with. And um, I think that's all you really need to know, which seems so obvious. I mean, like, yeah, it's about a woman who sleeps a lot, and you'll, you'll see that she just does that. Um, but other things happen in the book. Okay. So this is my year of rest and relaxation. 
and this is chapter one. Whenever I woke up, oh, by like my reading will get funnier as I as I go forward, but you don't have to wait um, to laugh. I will not take it. I will not take it badly if you laugh. Okay, chapter one. Whenever I woke up, night or day, I'd shuffle through the bright marble, fo bright marble foyer of my building and go up the block and around the corner where there was a bodega that never closed. I'd get two large coffees with cream and six sugars each, chug the first one in the elevator on the way back up to my apartment, then sip the second one slowly while I watched movies and ate animal crackers and took Trazodone and Ambien and Nembutal until I fell asleep again. I lost track of time in this way. Days passed, weeks, a month, a few months went by. When I thought of it, I ordered delivery from the Thai restaurant across the street or a tuna salad platter from the diner on First Avenue. I'd wake up to find voice messages on my cell phone from salons or spas confirming appointments I'd booked in my sleep. I always called back to cancel, which I hated doing because I hated talking to people. Early on in this phase, I had my dirty laundry picked up and clean laundry delivered once a week. It was a comfort to me to hear the torn plastic bags rustle in the draft from the living room windows. I liked catching whiffs of the fresh laundry smell while I dozed off on the sofa. But after a while, it was too much trouble to gather up all the dirty clothes and stuff them in the laundry bag, and the sound of my own washer and dryer interfered with my sleep. So I just threw away my dirty underpants. All the old pairs reminded me of Trevor, anyway. Trevor, you find out, is an ex, which I guess is obvious. Um, for a while, tacky lingerie from Victoria's Secret kept showing up in the mail. Frilly fuchsia and lime green thongs and teddies and baby doll nightgowns, each sealed in a clear plastic baggie. I stuffed the little baggies into the closet and went commando. An occasional package from Barney's or Saks provided me with men's pajamas and other things I couldn't remember ordering. Cashmere socks, graphic t-shirts, designer jeans. I took a shower once a week at most. I stopped tweezing, stopped bleaching, stopped waxing, stopped brushing my hair. No moisturizing or exfoliating, no shaving. I left the apartment infrequently. I had all my bills on automatic payment plans. I'd already paid a year of property taxes on my apartment and on my dead parents' old house upstate. Rent money from the tenants in that house showed up in my checking account by direct deposit every month. Unemployment was rolling in as long as I made the weekly call into the automated service and pressed one for yes when the robot asked if I'd made a sincere effort to find a job. That was enough to cover the co-payments on all my prescriptions and whatever I picked up at the bodega. Plus, I had investments. My dead father's financial advisor kept track of all that and sent me quarterly statements that I never read. I had plenty of money in my savings account, too, enough to live on for a few years as long as I didn't do anything spectacular. 
On top of all this, I had a high credit limit on my visa card. I wasn't worried about money. I had started hibernating as best I could in mid-June of 2000. I was 24 years old. I watched summer die and autumn turn cold and gray through a broken slat in the blinds. My muscles withered, the sheets on my bed yellowed, although I usually fell asleep in front of the television on the sofa, which was from Pottery Barn and striped blue and white and sagging and covered in coffee and sweat stains. I didn't do much in my waking hours besides watch movies. I couldn't stand to watch regular television. Especially at the beginning, TV aroused too much in me, and I'd get compulsive about the remote, clicking around, scoffing at everything, and agitating myself. I couldn't handle it. The only news I could read were the sensational headlines on the local daily papers at the bodega. I'd quickly glance at them as I paid for my coffees. Bush versus Gore for president, somebody important died, a child was kidnapped, a senator stole money, a famous athlete cheated on his pregnant wife. Things were happening in New York City. They always are, but none of it affected me. This was the beauty of sleep. Reality detached itself and appeared in my mind as casually as a movie or a dream. It was easy to ignore things that didn't concern me. Subway workers went on strike. A hurricane came and went. It didn't matter. Extraterrestrials could have invaded. Locusts could have swarmed. And I would have noted it, but I wouldn't have worried. When I needed more pills, I ventured out to the right aid, three blocks away. That was a painful passage. Walking up First Avenue, everything made me cringe. I was like a baby being born. The air hurt, the light hurt, the details of the world seemed garish and hostile. I relied on alcohol only on the days of these excursions, a shot of vodka before I went out, and walked past all the little bistros and cafes and shops I'd frequented when I was out there pretending to live a life. Otherwise, I tried to limit myself to a one-block radius around my apartment. Okay, so that's her happy story. Um, she goes on to describe in depth um, the men that work at this bodega, which is like sort of part, a big part of the book because she never goes anywhere else. Um, at least while she's conscious. Um, <clears throat> so as she's sleeping, she's continually interrupted by her one and only sort of friend, this woman named Riva. I I'm going to introduce you to Riva. Riva would show up at my apartment with a bottle of wine from time to time and insist on keeping me company. Her mother was dying of cancer. That, among many other things, made me not want to see her. You forgot I was coming over, Riva would ask, pushing her way past me into the living room and flipping on the lights. We talked last night, remember? I like to call Riva just as the Ambien was kicking in, apparently, or the Solfoton, or whatever. According to Riva, I only ever wanted to talk about Harrison Ford or Whoopi Goldberg, which she said was fine. Last night, you recounted the entire plot of Frantic. You guys know Frantic? 
Harrison Ford. Last night, you recounted the entire plot of Frantic, Riva said, and you did the scene where they're driving in the car with the cocaine. You went on and on. Emmanuel Saignet is amazing in that movie, I said. That's exactly what you said last night. <laughs> I was both relieved and irritated when Riva showed up, the way you'd feel if someone interrupted you in the middle of suicide. Not that what I was doing was suicide. In fact, it was the opposite of suicide. My hibernation was self-preservational. I thought it was going to save my life. Now get in the shower, Riva would say, heading into the kitchen. I'll take out the trash. I loved Riva, but I didn't like her anymore. We'd been friends since college, long enough that all we had left in common was our history together, a complex circuit of resentment, memory, jealousy, denial, and a few dresses I'd let Riva borrow, which she'd promised to dry clean in return, but never did. She worked as an executive assistant for an insurance brokerage firm in Midtown. She was an only child, a gym rat, had a blotchy red birthmark on her neck in the shape of Florida, a gum-chewing habit that gave her TMJ and breath that reeked of cinnamon and green apple candy. She liked to come over to my place, clear a space for herself on the armchair, comment on the state of the apartment, say I looked like I'd lost more weight, and complain about work all while refilling her wine glass after every sip. People don't understand what it's like for me, she said. They take it for granted that I'm always going to be cheerful. Meanwhile, these assholes think they can go around treating everyone below them like shit. And I'm supposed to giggle and look cute and send their faxes? Fuck them, let them all go bald and burn in hell. That's Reva talking. Riva was having an affair with her boss, Ken, a middle-aged man with a wife and child. She was open about her obsession with him, but she tried to hide that they were sexually involved. She once showed me a picture of him in a company brochure. Tall, big shoulders, white button-down shirt, blue tie, face so nondescript, so boring, he may as well have been molded out of plastic. Riva had a thing for older men. As did I. Men our age, Riva said, were too corny, too affectionate, too needy. I could understand her disgust, but I'd never met a man like that. All the men I'd ever been with, young as well as old, had been detached and unfriendly. You're a cold fish, that's why, Riva explained. Like attracts like. As a friend, Riva was indeed corny and affectionate and needy, but she was also very secretive and occasionally very patronizing. She couldn't or simply wouldn't understand why I wanted to sleep all the time, and she was always rubbing my nose in her moral high ground and telling me to face the music about whatever bad habit I'd been stuck on at the time. The summer I started sleeping, Riva admonished me for squandering my bikini body. <laughs> Smoking kills, she said. You should get out more. Are you getting enough protein in your diet? Etc. I'm not a baby, Riva. I'm just worried about you because I care, because I love you, she'd say. 
Since we'd met junior year, junior year, Riva could never soberly admit to any desire that was remotely uncouth. But she wasn't perfect. She's no white lily, as my mother would have said. I'd known for years that Riva was bulimic. I knew she masturbated with an electric neck massager because she was too embarrassed to buy a proper vibrator from a sex shop. I knew she was deep in debt from college and years of maxed out credit cards and that she shoplifted testers from the beauty section of the health food store near her apartment on the Upper West Side. I'd seen the tester stickers on various items in the huge bag of makeup she carried around wherever she went. She was a slave to vanity and status, which was not unusual in a place like Manhattan, but I found her desperation especially irritating. It made it hard for me to respect her intelligence. She was obsessed with brand names, conformity, fitting in. She made regular trips down to Chinatown for the latest knockoff designer handbags. She'd given me a fake Dooney and Burke wallet for Christmas once. She got us matching fake coach key rings. Ironically, Riva's desire to be classy had always been the déclassé thorn in her side. Studied grace is not grace, I once tried to explain. Charm is not a hairstyle. You either have it or you don't. The more you try to be fashionable, the tackier you'll look. Nothing hurt Riva more than effortless beauty like mine. <laughs> It's weird reading that sentence out loud. <laughs> when we'd watched Before Sunrise on video one day, everybody knows Before Sunrise, right? Julie Delphi, okay. When we'd watched Before Sunrise on video one day, she'd said, did you know Julie Delphi is a feminist? I wonder if that's why she's not skinnier. No way they'd cast her in this role if she were American. See how soft her arms are? Nobody here tolerates arm flab. Arm flab is a killer. It's like the SATs. You don't even exist if you're below 1,400. <laughs> Does it make you happy that Julie Delpy has arm flab? I'd asked her. No, she'd said after some consideration. Happiness is not what I'd call it. More like satisfaction. Okay, so that's Riva. And um, finally, this is the last bit I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the character that makes this year of sleep possible. Her name is Dr. Tuttle. <clears throat> okay, actually. I can't point to any one event that resulted in my decision to go into hibernation. Initially, I just wanted some downers to drown out my thoughts and judgments, since the constant barrage made it hard not to hate everyone and everything. I thought life would be more tolerable if my brain were slower to condemn the world around me. I started seeing Dr. Tuttle in January 2000. It started off very innocently. I was plagued with misery, anxiety, a wish to escape the prison of my mind and body, etc., Dr. Tuttle confirmed that this was nothing unusual. She wasn't a good doctor. <laughs> I had found her name in the phone book. 
You've caught me at a good moment, she said the first time I called. I just finished rinsing the dishes. Where did you find my number? In the yellow pages. I like to think that I'd picked Dr. Tuttle at random and that there was something faded about our relationship, divine in some way. But in truth, she'd been the only psychiatrist to answer the phone at 11 at night on a Tuesday. I'd left a dozen messages on answering machines by the time Dr. Tuttle picked up. The biggest threats to brains nowadays are all the microwave ovens, Dr. Tuttle explained on the phone that night. Microwaves, radio waves, now there are cell phone towers blasting us with who knows what kind of frequencies. But that's not my science. I deal in treating mental illness. Do you work for the police, she asked me. No, I work for an art dealer at a gallery in Chelsea. Are you FBI? No. CIA? No. Why? I just have to ask these questions. Are you DEA, FDA, NICB, NHCAA? Are you an investigator hired by any private or governmental entity? Do you work for a medical insurance company? Are you a drug dealer, drug addict? Are you a clinician, a med student, getting pills for an abusive boyfriend or employer, NASA? <laughs> I think I have insomnia, I lied. That's my main issue. You're probably addicted to caffeine, too, am I right? I don't know. You better keep drinking that coffee. If you quit now, you'll just go crazy. <laughs> Real insomniacs suffer hallucinations and lost time and usually have poor memory. It can make life very confusing. Does that sound like you? Sometimes I feel dead, I told her, and I hate everybody. Does that count? Oh, that counts. That <laughs> certainly counts. I'm sure I can help you. Okay, so Dr. Tuttle tells her to come in the next morning. And she does. <clears throat> I'm gonna, I usually read this description of her office, but I'm going to skip it. Basically, it's, she's weird. Okay. <laughs> the first time I met Dr. Tuttle, she wore a foam neck brace because of a taxi accident and was holding an obese tabby whom she introduced as my eldest. <laughs> She pointed out the tiny yellow envelopes in the waiting room. When you come in, write your name on an envelope and fold your check inside. Payments go in here, she said, knocking on the wooden box on the desk in her office. It was the kind of box they have in churches for accepting donations for candles. The fainting couch in her office was covered in cat fur and piled on one end with little antique dolls with chipped porcelain faces. On her desk were half-eaten granola bars and stacked Tupperware containers of grapes and cut-up melon, a mammoth old computer, and National Geographic magazines. What brings you here, she asked. Depression? She'd already pulled out her prescription pad. My plan was to lie. I'd given it careful consideration. I told her I'd been having trouble sleeping for the past six months and then complained of despair and nervousness in social situations. 
But as I was reciting my practiced speech, I realized it was somewhat true. I wasn't an insomniac, but I was miserable. Complaining to Dr. Tuttle was strangely liberating. I want downers, that much I know, I said frankly, and I want something that'll put a damper on my need for company. I'm at the end of my rope, I said. I'm an orphan on top of it all. I probably have PTSD. My mother killed herself. How? Dr. Tuttle asked. Slit her wrists. I lied. Good to know. Dr. T Thanks. <laughs> Dr. Tuttle's hair was red and frizzy. The foam brace she wore around her neck had what looked like coffee and food stains on it, and it squished the skin on her neck up toward her chin. Her face was like a bloodhound's, folded and drooping, her sunken eyes hidden under very small, wire-framed glasses with Coke bottle lenses. I never got a good look at Dr. Tuttle's eyes, but I suspect that they were crazy eyes, <laughs> black and shiny like a crow's. The pen she used was long and purple and had a purple feather at the end of it. Both my parents died when I was in college, I went on, just a few years ago. Dr. Tuttle seemed to study me for a moment, her expression blank and breathless. Then she turned back to her little prescription pad. I'm very good with insurance companies, she said, matter-of-factly. I know how to play into their little games. Are you sleeping at all? Barely, I said. Any dreams? Oh, only nightmares. I figured. Sleep is key. Most people need upwards of 14 hours or so. <laughs> the modern age has forced us to live unnatural lives. Busy, 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 go, go, go. You probably work too much. She scribbled for a while on her pad. Mirth, Dr. Tuttle said. I like it better than joy. Happiness isn't a word I like to use in here. It's very arresting, happiness. You should know that I'm someone who appreciates the subtleties of human experience. Being well-rested is a precondition, of course. Do you know what mirth means, M-I-R-T-H? Yeah, like the house of mirth, I said. A sad story, said Dr. Tuttle. I haven't read it. Better you don't. <laughs> I read The Age of Innocence, I said. So you're educated. I went to Columbia. That's good for me to know, but not much use to you in your condition. <laughs> Education is directly proportional to anxiety, as you've probably learned having gone to Columbia. How's your food intake? Is it steady? Any dietary restrictions? When you walked in here, I thought of Farrah Fawcett and Faye Dunaway. Any relation? <laughs> I'd say you're what, 20 pounds underweight? I think my appetite would come back if I could sleep, I said. It was a lie. I was already sleeping upwards of 12 hours from 8 to 8. I was hoping to get pills to help me sleep straight through the weekends. Daily meditation has been shown to cure insomnia in rats, said Dr. Tuttle. 
I'm not a religious person, but you could try visiting a church or synagogue to ask for advice on inner peace. The Quakers seem like reasonable people, but be wary of cults. They're often just traps to enslave young women. Are you sexually active? <laughs> not really, I told her. Do you live near any nuclear plants, any high-voltage equipment? I live on the Upper East Side, I said. Take the subway? At this point, I still took the subway each day to work. A lot of psychic diseases get passed around in confined public spaces. I sense your mind is too porous. Do you have any hobbies? I watch movies. That's a fun one. How'd they get the rats to meditate? I asked her. You've seen rodents breed in captivity. The parents eat their babies. Now, we can't demonize them. They do it out of compassion for the good of the species. Any allergies? <laughs> Strawberries, I said. With that, Dr. Tuttle put her pen down and stared off into space, deep in thought, it seemed. Some rats, she said after a while, probably deserve to be demonized. Certain individual rats. She picked her pen back up with a flourish of the purple feather. The moment we start making grand generalizations, we give up the right to self-govern. I hope you follow me. Rats are very loyal to the planet. Try these, she said, handing me a sheath of prescriptions. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Um, does anybody want to ask a question? Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> so in the book, there's a part where um, she's describing her college admissions um, and like personal statement yeah and um there are like certain her, her she lets her mom edit it or, or like mark it up and there are certain words that she uses repeatedly mm -hmm. that her mom notes and then she like doesn't receive the edits she just like kind of ignores what her mom says and so I kind of wondered um if you had a experience like that and <laughs> that made you want to include that and what your like editorial process is like how you know when to like receive feedback and when you just go with your gut mm -hmm. um thanks for the question um uh well in the book she doesn't take her mom's advice because her mom's a pilled out alcoholic and she isn't giving her i mean repeating certain words Sometimes it's good to repeat certain words, but an editor that's just trained to look at things will will circle it and then just be, repeat. We repeated this word, um, and 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 I think it is instinctual. But I mean, when you're working with an editor, you always have to give a reason. Um, so I think you end up thinking about your instinctual moves in hindsight a little bit more intellectually. Um, that's been my experience with editing in that in that way, and line editing in that way.
Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. I'd like to extend a personal thank you. Today's my birthday, and I Happy can't birthday. think of a better way to start my year of rest and relaxation. Hopefully, it'll be, <laughs> hopefully it'll be less somber and more filled with mirth. Um, Good. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, your anti-heroes are very inspirational, in my opinion, and I was wondering if you uh, had any authors, contemporaries, anyone who inspired you for your beautiful prose. Thank you. Um, this is always the hardest question because it, it really is a collection of everything I've consumed and seen and investigated my entire life. Um, what I can say about this book is I'm a reference point for the authorial distance from the narrator was Brett Easton Ellis in American Psycho. That was a helpful, I, I'm grateful that he wrote that book because it, it helped remind me to do this um, and, and allowed me to make her um, story weirder than I, I would have experienced it myself. Um, <clears throat> I really like Joni Mitchell. I quote her um, at the beginning of the book from an album that she did with Mingus. I think she's an amer amazing lyricist. I'll read the, I'll, I'll read what I put in here. I had to pay $750 for this <laughs> out of my own money. <laughs> so <laughs> just, it's true, but it was so worth it. I would have paid more. Um, so do you guys know this, this album Joni Mitchell did with Mingus? Anyway, this is from The Wolf That Lives in Lindsay. Oh, it's one of the songs. And um, here's, what I, here's what I bought. If you're smart or rich or lucky, maybe you'll beat the laws of man. But the inner laws of spirit and the outer laws of nature, no man can. No, no man can. I think th that line really stuck out to me as I was reading this book. I mean, writing it. Um, people, people like that, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't like reading a lot when I was writing, but I did listen to a lot of Joni Mitchell. Hi, uh, thank you uh, for the reading. It was great, and for your book, Eileen, I, I, lo I loved it. Um, you sh this book had a, what you read at least had a lot of humor, and you seem like mm -hmm. naturally you're probably a f funny, wry person. But I was wondering, is writing funny things different? Like, do you have to write it and it? it and then ha read it to someone to see if they laugh, or do you know is instinctively what you've written and is, is funny? And is there is there a difference between writing the humorous parts versus the other parts? Um, I don't read things to people to see if they're funny. I feel like I know if it makes if it makes me excited, mm -hmm. jubilant. I'm guessing that there's something that will make the reader jubilant. Like if if I can read the same line over and over again and each time and like <laughs> then then <laughs> then I'm like pretty sure that I've gotten the humor. Um and the difference between writing funny and writing not funny, it does it is a different um psychic setting. But sometimes I'm, I write with such self-seriousness that it comes out as complete absurdity. So it's not always a 
direct, like one-to-one ratio, like my intention and how how much humor I end up scoring. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for your question. Hi. Hi. Um, I was, uh, I haven't read this book yet, Mm -hmm. um, but I plan to get it tonight. Um, I, I wanted to ask if you've experienced a lot of um, hostile reaction from people. Let me explain. Okay. Uh, I'm in a small book club, and um, we each, you know, go, we take turns picking books. So I picked the book Eileen, and the reason I picked it is that it was my name. Oh. <laughs> and so it caught my eye, and, and then I read up on it, and I thought, well, I'm going to pick this. And, um, and then when it, my turn came around again, I picked, uh, I forget the title of the anthology of short stories. And um, both times, the reaction of the people in the book club were very hostile, <laughs> you know, because of, of how the characters sometimes, you know, the, they might pick their nose or do things that are, that are very human, they're of humanity, but are not usually pointed out in books. And, um, and this somehow created a, you know, a, a storm among the people in the, in the book club, and they were very hostile, and I felt like it was against me and it was very much against you and not and not just the characters. So I'm just wondering if you've seen that and generally and it 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 got me thinking that maybe there's something like a violation of the social contract that that there has been a social contract where even though we've been writing about humanity, we have had this unspoken rule that we we don't talk about picking our noses or, you know, smelling our fingers when they've been somewhere or whatever. (laughs) So I just, if you have any comments on that. Thanks, Eileen. Um, This seems to be a common response in book clubs. (laughs) And people come and tell me about it. I brought this to my book club. Everyone was so upset. Someone, I was at a reading somewhere on the West Coast and this young man came up to me and he said, my mother brought this to her Christian book club (laughs) and got so much shit for it that she had to make them each a goodie bag. Um, something like that. Yeah, but people, you know, I'm sure, I I think part of it is generational, and I think that part of it is, um, reasons why people read. I think a lot of people read to get out of their body, and maybe it annoys them to be reminded that they have one when you're reading something that's so bodily? I don't know. But also, I mean, people are uptight. And they don't like 
when they don't they don't like when they're willfully made uncomfortable. Like I, they didn't have to read the book; they could have ditched it at any moment. Um, but I think it makes I think partly. I mean, the way that I don't take this personally is that I understand that everybody has been through puberty. <laughs> And everybody has had these uncomfortable feelings about their body and maybe still do. Um, and that there's nothing in, there's no, God never told me that literature had to be an intellectual experience. So I, I when I'm reading something, if it's good, it's visceral. Like if I'm if, if if I'm reading a suspenseful scene, like my heart will start racing, or I might you know start to get agitated. Or if I'm reading something sad, I might start to tear up, or you know my throat will clench. And if I read something disgusting, I'll feel grossed out. And disgust is like a principal biological function of like hum human beings, and we would rather it not be that way because it's disgusting and that's what's so fascinating about disgust but we we would all be dead without it we would just be eating up shit and dying <laughs> so like i don't take it personally but yeah people certain people don't like it they're they're it's not ladylike <laughs> Um, so I'll, I'll do respect to those book clubs, but <laughs> I came up because I brought it to a book club oh. and we loved it. And one of the reasons, even the people who were like, um, they kept saying, well, I would have put it down if it was disgusting, but not true. Like mm -hmm. the fact that it was so right was what kept people connected. But my question is not really a question in that at the end of the book club, we were breaking up and someone was just like, it was Eileen, and someone was just like, that mouse in the glove compartment, though. And everybody just kind of talked about it for another 20 minutes. So, <laughs> and what it could mean and what it is. So I totally understand if there's nothing you would ever add to it, because like it's all in the book. Mm -hmm. But if there's anything else you would bring to the mouse in the glove compartment. No. All I mean, right. I think that, um, I mean, if you guys care, I think... Uh, mouse was probably the first dead mammal I ever encountered and it had an effect on me. So I think that's probably why I used it as an object in that book. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Um, I, I'm curious what um, really inspired the way that you depicted the relationship between Riva um, she just seems, or that, that relationship between the two of them just so beautifully illustrates for me that kind of love-hate, jealousy relationship between girlfriends, especially at that age in their early 20s. So I was just curious I'd like to hear more about what inspired you, if you have any personal relationships like that, or it's just such a pivotal part of the book for me. Um, I don't know if I've had relationships like that to that extreme. No, not that um, extreme, me neither, but I can definitely <laughs> identify with some aspects I can, I, of it. Yeah, and I can identify with both characters. Mm -hmm. um, but 
it was a it, it was you know when writing the book Riva was sort of a development of the protagonist as her um, adversary, and so Riva was built out of everything that the protagonist couldn't accept about herself. And you know, like what they say, what, what irritates us the most in another person is what we can't stand about ourselves. I, I mean, that was a, a totally instinctual principle in designing each character. I mean, Riva can't stand that the protagonist, I mean, I didn't tell you this, but is like tall, beautiful, like actually, like superficially very good looking, blonde and really thin. And Riva is desperate to be accepted um, as a, you know, attractive female living in New York City and goes to great lengths to try to compete. And so it was like, well, okay, if my protagonist is this, then Riva should be this. I was basically looking at what would, what would build the most tension. Um, yeah. I mean, and not just superficially. I mean, also, and like Riva is is somebody who's really excited about self-help, whereas the protagonist is completely rejects the idea of help. Things like that too. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I think I read an interview where you said that um, when you were writing the book, you had to get rid of like a hundred pages because you like had gone in the wrong direction. Um, so I was wondering that like when you're writing um, and you're like confronted with a possible like root or tangent, um, how do you know whether um, it's like worth taking? Or like ha when you're writing, how do you know you're um, like going in the right direction? Mm. I know that I'm going in the right direction because things resonate in a frequency in my body that is like, yes. And I know that I'm in the wrong direction if I'm reading something and I hate myself. <laughs> That's basically the way it's been working. But sometimes I'll try to hate myself until I get to a, p a point in the writing that resonates. And that's when I end up throwing away 200 pages. I've tried way too hard to do this thing that I don't like. Um, but I also think a lot of writing is trial and error. And I, are you a writer? Um, I, maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a good answer. <laughs> I think, um, I do think that we have to hold our, hold our pens loosely in a draft and allow ourselves to write things that go in the wrong direction. If I hadn't written in the wrong direction for 200 pages, I would never have figured out how to do the compressed story that the novel required. I needed to go all over the place in order to understand. I don't regret it. Um, you know, a lot of it is trial and error. It's like... Um, To me, it feels like <clears throat> seeing something from really, really far away and squinting and like trying to hear it. And if I have to get really quiet 
and still and squint really hard and then very slowly work toward it, like walk toward it. And if I can start to see it clearly, my writing gets better. But if I'm like, oh, I think I know what it looks like, and then I just start around, I get sloppy. Oh, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Got it. Thanks. We can take this last question. Okay. Um, hi. Hi. I recently encountered your books, and I'm hooked. So they're great. Um, I just read Glue, and picking up on something you said about these books not being ladylike, I was wondering whether it's obvious or what the how you see the connection between McGlue and this character, which I see so very similar. Um, it's interesting how there's so much about their sexuality in a certain sense, but at the same time, very detached. Um, and that relationship between the two characters, it seems like they could either both be women or both be men. Um, so I just wondered, maybe you could comment on your evolution from there to here, and if there was something in in this character that is also McGlue. Thanks for asking about McGlue. Because um, not, I think not many people know about it, and I'm. It's a. It's probably my best book. I think. Well, what what I'll say first is that I wanted to write this novel as a development of what, I, what had interested me in my short stories, stylistically and in terms of looking at human nature in its more contemporary form. But I think that in every novel I've written, there is an essential quandary that the narrator slash protagonist is facing, and it's what am I doing here? How, how do I handle my own consciousness? How do I get out of here? And um, what does this all mean? Which I, which I kind of think is just what art is for, is to ask those questions. I think maybe I take it very literally, those questions in my books. Um, what does McGlue have in common with this narrator? too much to answer. It's too complicated. I don't know. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you guys so much for coming. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.